Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, my friends. I hope you are doing okay. I hope you're hanging in there. Um, I'm recording this just a couple of days after the really horrific, racist, anti-Asian violence took place in Atlanta, and I know we talk about justice, and we talk about systemic racism, and we talk about capitalism and patriarchy on this podcast, and yeah, it's not surprising. And it's really horrifying. So I'm linking to some anti-Asian violence resources that you can check out in the description. Um, And if you're listening to this and you are an Asian person, I just want to say that my heart really goes out to you and I hope that you are, yeah, able to take care of yourself and find some moments of ease and some moments of peace um i'm also linking in the description to a post that blair over at the account um at talk purity to me on instagram wrote about what purity culture and evangelical christianity has to do with these murders and i think yeah that's a really important analysis and yeah something that white people need to be talking about and specifically white evangelicals and ex-evangelicals people who yeah come from that background as well so i'm linking to that post if you want to check it out and those resources as well are in the description um with that being said i'm gonna talk a little bit about today's guest on the podcast is Carolyn Elliott and our topic for today is existential kink. So Carolyn is an author and a teacher who specializes in helping people change their lives, um, heal through shadow integration practices and applied occult philosophy and her really core practice or core philosophy is existential kink. I want to just give a couple of, you know, content notes (laughs) before we, um, before I tell you everything we talked about. So there are mentions in this episode of abuse, of child molestation, of heroin addiction and of cults none of it is graphic but those themes are mentioned so just offering that you can opt in or opt out but we do mention those things and i just want to talk a little bit about the practice of existential kink because you'll hear in this interview that i really appreciate existential kink obviously i had carol i'm having carolyn on the show so (laughs) um i'm engaged with her work and i really appreciate the practice it's really supported me in multiple ways mostly over i think like since pandemic started actually i started reading her book last march around the beginning of the pandemic when i was yeah visiting my family and things were just starting to shut down so i guess that's kind of like the time frame for engaging with existential kink for me personally and i think it's something that can be quite challenging and how i kind of feel about it is there's a nuance that i'm holding around like the both and and you'll hear in this episode when carolyn talks about like the ideas behind it and these ideas of like having as evidence of wanting and those kinds of things i think we can take them in a really um kind of victim blamey way and so i just want to offer that like that's not the perspective that i'm I'm not going to speak for carolyn i don't think that's the perspective she's coming from it's not the perspective that i'm coming from and so for me existential kink is something that can be really awesome applied at like a personal level and it's not gonna 
you know it's not going to end systemic violence it's not going to change the realities of like capitalism and racism and patriarchy um and i also don't know that it's super helpful and i believe carolyn talks about this in her book actually um for big traumas that you might be working with or things like yeah depression anxiety um but some of the things that i've found it to be really helpful around are healing in like interpersonal relationships romantic relationships um and around money as well which we talk a bit about in this episode and probably other stuff too but those are two of the big things (laughs) that are coming to mind for me um so yeah just want to offer that up here for your thoughts and opinions as well let me know what you think i told carolyn before we talked that i didn't think or that i think a lot of people listening to the episode maybe don't know about existential kink too much so we really like go into the nitty-gritty and yeah i found it really helpful so hopefully it is for you too we talk about how carolyn developed existential kink like what the fuck it is how to do it all that stuff and how to start to love and even get off on those things in your life that your conscious mind that your ego hates considering life from soul perspective putting ourselves back into the role of creator and dreamer of the dream rather than the character sexual fantasy and existential kink integrating an existential kink practice working existential kink in the moment staying with intense sensation this practice that i really love and do a lot of deepest fear inventory desire and fear as two sides of the same coin and your havingness level for feeling good so i hope this episode supports as always my intention is to yeah share stories and nuggets that make you think or offer questions or offer a different perspective or open you up to something or offer some kind of moment of like oh running this through the filter of my own intuition and maybe there's something here for me and that feels really good or maybe there's not that's cool too lots of different episodes for you to explore so i did want to share one free thing that i have um coming up before we get into the interview last in February, I think, (laughs) in February, I ran a free creative reset course, and I'm running it again on April 6th. It's totally free. It's a mini course to help you deepen your relationship with your creativity and really centered around the idea that, like, your creativity matters and the process of creating itself is valuable and worthwhile and powerful and it matters and that it can help us anyways touch more aliveness it can help us touch more of ourselves so it's a little four-day email course delivered over email and over the four days we explore your unique creative blocks and um, hopefully support you in opening to more of your innate creativity through journaling and ritual and practice and breath work so if you want to deepen your relationship with your creativity um, or reconnect with your creativity maybe it's not really a deepening but it's a reconnection that's needed that's cool too um, we're gonna start on april 6th so you can sign up at the link in the description and you probably won't get a confirmation email or anything but on april 6th you'll get like the welcome email so you can sign up now and you'll be all set for then okay that's all i wanted to share with you let's get into this episode. I usually like to start the show by hearing about your journey. So I'd love to hear about your journey with shadow and coming into creating, discovering. I'm not sure you think about it, but existential kink. Yeah. Oh boy. What a question. Let's see. Um, Well, my childhood was very interesting. I I had some very dark experiences in my childhood. I was molested. There was abuse. My parents were always fighting. Um, But I was also exposed to a lot of really amazing, beautiful things in mysticism. I was a Rosicrucian. Um, I hung out with Wiccans and Druids and had, you know, exposure to the tarot and the Kabbalah and Gnostic Christianity and a lot of cool things. 
Um, when I was a teenager, I got addicted to heroin because I didn't know how to deal with all the pain from my childhood and the trauma. And weirdly, I was addicted to heroin and I had a perfect straight A average at my university. It was I was a weird drug addict. Um, and I decided to get clean when my grades started slipping because it was too offensive to my ego for my grades to slip. So I um I got into, they sent me to a rehab and uh, I started doing 12 step recovery. And in 12 step recovery, I really learned the basics of how to be a functional human being. Like, don't lie, don't steal, help other people. I really did not know any of that before. Like, I knew a bunch of like high faluting. <laughs> like fancy stuff, but I did really did not understand those basics. So I learned how to be a basically decent human being and uh, how to, you know, have fun without substances. And, uh, but I was still really stuck in life in that um, I was an academic. I went to get my PhD in English, uh, critical and cultural studies at the university of Pittsburgh. And um I started realizing I didn't really want to stay in academia for the rest of my life because it's also a very abusive, weird scene. People get very petty and very mean over very little things. And um, and also that academia just wasn't the most important thing to me. I had this experience where um, I had an, an injury in my eye. My cornea was injured. And... Um, I had to wear an eye patch over the injured eye and uh, I could only read for a certain amount of time each day before my one eye would get tired and I wouldn't be able to read anymore. And uh, that was really scary for an English major because you're supposed to, you have these long lists of books, you're supposed to read everything. I found that I was in such a state with my, the pain in my eye and just uh, generally... <laughs> the toughness of life, all I wanted to read with a few hours that I could read was like spiritual stuff, like mm -hmm. uplifting stuff. And um, so that's what I, that's what I did. That's where my interest gravitated. And um, I had sort of a miraculous healing experience with my injured eye, which is sort of a whole story unto itself, but it reaffirmed my commitment and my interest in magic and miracles <laughs> above, you know, let's debate what happened on page 255 of Moby Dick and how it, oh God. I mean, I love, I love reading and I love literature, but I do not love the way that academia treats literature. Um, so I was also teaching at that time, teaching at the university, and I was teaching in um, a very weird way in that they let me design my own classes. So I did. And I was teaching a class called Reading the Soul of Poetry. And it was all about like thinking poetically and perceiving life poetically. And I had this weird thing where um, I refused to give my students grades. <laughs> Because I was just like, I don't know, what do you what do you mean? How can I give somebody a C or a D or a B or an, whatever for their attempts to engage poetically with life? It didn't make any sense to me. So anyways, I got my PhD and the university was like, you're too weird. We don't like the way you teach. Go away now. So I was like, wow, I don't know what else to do with my life. So I was working um, as a freelance writer. I was writing resumes mostly for Coca-Cola executives. There was this whole, and I, anyways, it was very strange. And I was pretty miserable at that time too. <laughs> Misery was a big theme throughout my twenties. Um, still in recovery. So still, um, you know, not trapped in drug addiction, but really struggling to get by and really not having a strong sense of my worth or my, um, how to navigate in the world. And I got involved uh, with a sex cult, sort of a, a famous sex cult. There's been a BBC radio production about it now uh, called One Taste. And I was peripherally involved. I wasn't like in, <laughs> in the center of the culty leadership or anything, but I was on the periphery and I learned a lot of really, really worthwhile things from One Taste. So the 
thing about cults, uh, there's always upsides and downsides. Downsides, things like them demanding all of your time, all your money, and <laughs> kooky things like that. Yeah. And the upsides being sometimes they really do have deep things to transmit. And I received a transmission there um, that was really, really valuable to me. And basically what it was is I started understanding the goddess in a very concrete way. So previously as a kid, I'd like, you know, I'd read Wiccan books, I'd, but the goddess was still this sort of like abstract, sort of almost silly idea to me. But what the orgasmic meditation scene did is it helped me understand that the goddess, the that creative power, that electricity was alive in my body through erotic energy, through orgasmic energy. And that that creative force was, um, was always active and always creating things in my life unconsciously, like without my conscious um, knowledge or approval. Mm-hmm. And people would, you know, it was in one taste that people started joking with me that I would witch things. That was something that we talked about. They were like, Carolyn, stop witching that. <laughs> like one time we were supposed to go to San Francisco for some big conference and we were all piled into the car. And on our way to the airport, uh, two of the tires on the car just popped, just went bust. And everybody turned around and looked at me and was like, Carolyn, you witched that because I didn't want to go on the trip. And I was like, all right, morons. Obviously, I didn't have anything to do with the tires. You should have checked your tires, blah, 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 blah. I was very offended. But I started thinking about it. And I was, and they were like, Carolyn, do you ever notice that you always get what you want? Like, you just always get what you want. And I would be like, that's not true. I don't always get what I want. First of all, I'm broke and I don't have a boyfriend and blah, 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 blah. But then I just started to see all these specific situations where it did, it would always, you know, there would be something. Um, uh, And I started to think, man, if I, if only this power that can blow out the tires on the car, (laughs) if only I could use that to like make some money or, uh, you know, get into a good relationship or do something really worthwhile in my life instead of just like witching all these funny little things. And so I started to get really curious about what it would take to do that. And um, it occurred to me that the first step um, would be taking full responsibility for what I was already unconsciously creating. Mm -hmm. So um, there's this quote from Carl Jung that's really important to me. He says, "Um, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. And what I, I really feel like that quote can be the key to everything if if only we're willing to look um, because what it tells me is that um, I don't need decades of dream work to discover what's going on in my unconscious. I can really, I can just look around at what my life <laughs> contains and what it's doing mm-hmm. and that gives me information about what I am unconsciously attracted to, what I unconsciously get pleasure from, what... Um, what is really, really important to me at a level below my conscious awareness. And I've discovered that um, usually whatever that is somehow conflicts with what my ego thinks that I want. Because my ego, you know, I, I just want to be loved. I want health. I want money. I want all good stuff all the time. But then my actual life is always some sort of mixture of good stuff and bad stuff. It's never like all good stuff. <laughs> So I just started getting really curious about that. And I started being like, you know, what if I just um, really started to identify and get on the side of my unconscious and its creative power? Because it seems to have all the witch force. (laughs) What if I just did that and found out what happened? So I began that process and um, I began the process of really, really, really letting myself fully enjoy what my unconscious was apparently already enjoying, like not having any money, like only getting involved with weirdo, crazy, super jealous, nutty guys, like only um, 
like feeling rejected, feeling misunderstood, all of these things that my ego was like, no, we, we hate that. I was like, mm, but what if we really kind of like that? And what if that was okay? What if it was really all right to just sink into that and admit to myself, there is some part of me that really, really enjoys this, that finds this really fun, really fascinating and just psh, let myself enjoy it that much. And uh, I think there was also another quote ringing around in my mind, which we used to talk about in in that scene at the time, which was something like, um, you can't control what you have no approval for. And I think that that's a really true sentence. Like if I look at something in my life and I'm like, oh, this sucks, this is all wrong. No, 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 no. Um, that energy of disapproval it, it renders me powerless. It's like, for example, if like my brother is doing something that I don't approve of and I tell him how much it sucks and how wrong he is. And then I'm like, Hey, you should do this other thing. He's not going to be like, Oh yes, Carolyn. Oh, how wise you are. You're right. I did suck, but then you told me what to do. And now I know, <laughs> you know, it's like, People are like that and circumstances are like that and everything is like that. Everything only wants to be influenced by something that already loves it and approves of it and embraces it. So, um, so I found that by really, really loving and really, really getting off on these messed up things in my life, I was able to actually gain influence over them. I was able to liberate energy that had been stuck in resisting them and denying them. And that had, you know, the old phrase, what you resist persists. Like as long as my ego was protesting all of this stuff, it just kept persisting because <laughs> it was being resisted. And when I, re when I stopped resisting and when I just really orgasmically surrendered to it, um, all of this energy was liberated and my, I started getting flooded with very, very different kinds of inspirations and ideas. And um, my energy was just like attracting a different kind of person to me. And my life changed very rapidly. Like within a matter of months, I went to making like a thousand dollars a month to making like $10,000 a month. And I moved to Bali and I was like, hey, 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 we got our witch force <laughs> happening now. Let's, <laughs> let's see what we can do with this. Um, and I started teaching other people. I started teaching my clients and um, how to do this weird form of magic. And as I struggled to explain it to other people and to put words into it, I kept um, studying Jungian psychology and alchemy and hermeticism. And I found that one way that it, it really is explicable is um, as the, the union of the conscious and the unconscious mind, which is also known as the alchemical marriage. And it kind of makes sense that in order for the alchemical marriage to happen, the conscious mind, the ego needs to humble itself to the unconscious, to the generative, creative, feminine part of us. Um, so I started teaching it that way. And maybe I'll pause now because I've been rambling for a while. <laughs> no, I love it. It's so fascinating to me. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, so how do you start to love and even get off on those things in your life that your like, conscious mind hates? How do you work through that process to actually get to that place? Great question. Yeah. So there's a few different layers to that. Um, one layer is just paying attention to the sheer sensation in my body that comes up when I think about the situation or when I'm in the situation. Like, can I tune into that sensation without any story about what it means or anything? So like, for example, um, when I felt into the sensation of having an overdrawn bank account, I noticed that there was like a heat in my face. There was um, like my heart was beating kind of faster. There was um, this sense of like, um, like almost like a pulling or a yearning kind of sensation. Without any story about this means that I'm in trouble. This means da 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 da. That's just arousal. That's just being turned on. 
And so just feeling into those sensations and allowing that to be as, to have, allowing myself to take pleasure in that instead of turning myself off to it. So something that I like to talk about is most of us humans have a very small window of sensations and circumstances that we are willing to be fully turned on and happy about. It's like this big. It's like people complimenting me, lots of money coming into me, um, you know, a sunny day, my hair looks good. Like this is the window of sensation that I'm willing to be happy about. What I, I try to show people is that there's a whole lot of power in expanding that window of the amount of sensations and circumstances that we are willing to be in like orgasmically getting off on. So like, oh yeah, this withdrawn bank account. Oh my God. Yeah, this is so <laughs> fun. I can just like, oh, the intensity of it is amazing. Like, oh, this rejection, this person insulted me all over the internet. They talked about how much I suck. Yes. <laughs> like just, <laughs> just open to it. And it's just really a matter of attitude. You know, it's like um, the poet John Milton said, the mind makes of, the mind can make... <laughs> Mine can make a hell of heaven or a heaven of hell, right? It's like we really can just choose. And we've all been taught to have this attitude of like, no, we should only be happy and we should only be blissful about like this teeny tiny little fragment of reality. It's like, why not just be a super freak and make that way, way bigger? Um, And of course, the main thing that it entails is... um, being willing to be seen as a little bit crazy or a little bit weird or willing to like be outside of the the framework that most people are going around in. So it's a willingness. It was, it's basically like, would I rather be seen as weird or would I rather keep being miserable? <laughs> and I was like, mm. <laughs> I think I would just rather be weird. So <laughs> I started, uh, so, so doing that, um, so deciding, just making that decision of like, it's okay to be weird. It's okay to see things differently and feel things differently. And so that's one layer of it. And then a more metaphysical abstract layer of it, I think, um, that can help us get free of any shame or whatever is really considering the matter from the perspective of our soul. So Mm -hmm. like, let's say before, we incarnated into these bodies. We were just like floating around in a cosmic soup. You know, we were at one with God. Everything was peachy. We were omniscient, omnipotent. Um, Everything was cool. Except it was a little bit boring. There was no challenge. There was no danger. There was no tragedy. There was no, everything was just nice all the time. So I think, I suspect that as souls, we heard, hey, look, there's this dimension called uh, earth, duality, samsara. You can incarnate down there. You can experience all sorts of different extremes. They have hot and cold, night and day, good and evil. You can go down. It's like the ride of a lifetime. It's like Disney. Basically, this is the world of the universe where you get to have all these thrill rides. So... um, from the perspective of our souls uh, who are here for a damn good ride, experiencing really painful, scary stuff like scarcity, like a scarcity of love, a scarcity of money, a scarcity of health, um, like, uh, you know, everything, everything painful and scary, death, abuse, uh, the worst of it is part of the adventure. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying every minute of the adventure that our soul signed up for. In fact, I I tend to think that that's probably part of the point is to learn to, is for the soul to learn to enjoy not just the endless peace of total oneness with divinity, but to also learn to enjoy the, the big thrill ride dance of duality and all the the grief and the fear and the anger and the joy that we have here. So from that zoomed out level, just remembering like I'm a soul that incarnated and it's, there's nothing wrong with me enjoying every dimension of my incarnation. Just like um, 
so it, when we do this, we're putting ourselves back into the role of author or into the role of creator. We're identifying as the divine dreamer of the dream instead of the character. So like, I like to think of, um, you know, the guy who wrote the books that Game of Thrones was based on, George R.R. R. Martin, Song of Ice and Fire, fascinating set of books. Obviously, George R.R. R. Martin enjoys the whole thing. He enjoys writing the scary scenes, the war scenes. He enjoys writing the happy reunion scenes, the scenes where everybody sits down and eats. He loves all of it. He's creating all of it. All of it is part of this process. If you are a specifically a character in a George R.R. R. Martin book, <laughs> and, and that's who you understand yourself to be, you might enjoy the things a little bit less. But if you start to remember, oh, hey, I'm not actually just this person. Actually, I'm um, part of this creation. And actually, my real identity is I am the creator. I am the author. I am um, putting together this whole show. When we move our identification progressively to that point, um, yeah, that's very freeing. It's very liberating. And again, it puts us more in touch with our magical power to make adjustments to the storyline. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And something that you say in your book is like, are you willing to playfully perceive your life as a wild, kinky game? And I just think that's, I mean, it's such a different perspective. And the idea of it being playful, like it can actually be really playful and fun and creative to like engage with your life this way is so cool. Yeah. Well, I would, Erin, since you've read the book, I would love to hear, have there been any ways that you've been able to apply it in your life or any experiences you've had? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, I love the book and I'll do your um, recorded existential kink meditation sometimes too. And I think one of the big breakthroughs for me through it is around my relationship with money. And I feel like my relationship with money at this point is kind of like, like this, it's like in waves, um, there's ups and there's downs. And I find whenever I'm in those downs, I'll do like the existential kink meditation. And I can really touch this part of myself that loves it. <laughs> that is so bored <laughs> when everything is perfect. And that really enjoys that feeling of for me, it's like humiliation that really enjoys that and wants to experience more of it. And so I'm like, okay, let me just ride this feeling. It's like kind of hot that I'm feeling so humiliated around not having any money right now. <laughs> and like, we'll just see where that takes me. And I find it helps me get back into like more of an up place. And also it just helps me feel good. It helps me feel like I'm more in my power and like I'm enjoying my life more, which I really appreciate. <laughs> that's so gorgeous, Erin. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, that's been my experience too. It's kind of funny. It's like I used to perpetually identify as this like put upon person who is not valued by the world. And like everything was evidence of that, especially when I was very low on money. <laughs> and when I started to just get off on everything, I started to perceive myself as this bizarrely fulfilled person this person who is just having this, yeah, this really weird, fun time. And it turns out that it's a lot easier for opportunities, ideas to come <laughs> when I'm feeling empowered and fulfilled than when I'm feeling like this tragic put upon like victim of fate. Yeah. Yeah. And when I'm, yeah, when I'm not in this place where I'm feeling really stuck like it kind of helps me move from that stuckness and also not rejecting that part of myself either that loves it it's like bringing that part of myself to the party and being like that's fine like that's cool let's hang out rather than like eh, shame you're not allowed to be here <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah that's a really deep point sometimes when I talk to people about existential kink or when they first start learning about it they're like there's this part of me that likes this and they're like, how do I get rid of it? And I'm like, no, honey, no, the point is you don't get rid of it. The point is, <laughs> yeah. the point is that part of you is just as wonderful and just as lovable as every other part. And we take it along for the ride. Just like, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, as we're talking about this, it's making me think of another connection that 
I've found really fascinating in doing these practices is the connection between like sexual fantasy and my shadow self is all like talking about that humiliation idea. Once I realized I had that feeling around money, I also was like, oh, being humiliated is also a really common theme of my sexual fantasies and how that is connected too. So I don't know if you ever think about that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about sexual fantasy and sexuality with that. Oh yeah. You know, what's so funny is when I first started talking about existential kink, people would ask me questions like that. And I was like unwilling to really deal with the full extent of my sexual <laughs> fantasy at the time. So I was like, well, it's kind of different. <laughs> it is different. It's not. I've, yeah, I've since had the chance to really get honest with myself and examine things in more detail. And so, for example, it's something that I found. Well, so first I want to say, if you're out there listening, it's actually quite common to have fantasies that involve humiliation, objectification, you know, being overpowered, ravished, things like this are pretty common. I had fantasies um, about, yeah, being treated like an object or being like devalued or something like that would, would reoccur. And, um, and it's so fascinating. I kept having this, uh, conflicts with my husband where at some point in the conflict, I would feel like so devalued. I would feel so unloved and like, so just like, uh, just like some, you know, a way that like he would look at me or like a gesture or something. And I would just be like, and I'd be like lying there and be like, I don't want to feel this way. Why is this? (laughs) And it wasn't until I got really, really honest with myself that like, because the the tricky thing with EK is um, it's possible to know that you get enjoyment from something without really integrating that into your day-to-day ego. Mm-hmm. And it's like, until it gets integrated into my day-to-day like ego, who I understand myself to be most of the time, it can still hang out at the periphery. So it was still hanging out there at the periphery. And until I was like really, really willing to own, like there is a part of me that finds, you know, this rejection, this devaluation, like utterly charming, like utterly delightful, just like endlessly compelling and fascinating And that's not just this weird little sexual thing. That's not just this like quirk of having grown up in an age filled with pornography or what to value, you know, it's not just the fault of the patriarchy. It is part of me and it's an okay part of me. And I can carry that part of me with me. It was like, as soon as I really, really let in that realization, there was some interesting stuff that went down in my relationship and it corresponded to this big change in him where he needed to go through feeling all of this deep grief that he hadn't felt. And then what came through on the other side of it was um, like what had always been there, but what, which, which we were getting good at covering up, which is like, he values me so much. Like I'm like chief goddess of the universe. <laughs> And it's so fascinating for me to like look back on the, those fights that we used to have and those like moments where I would feel like so insulted and so like uncared for. And it's like, it was all this really interesting form of theater that was like based around us both not being able to fully yet own up to and integrate these different parts of us. And for him, it was his grief. And for me, it was this piece of me that finds that kind of insult and just like, amazing (laughs) (laughs) and um so it's very very interesting like this process like this journey with this approach to life and this practice of existential kink um it can it really does unfold different things over time and sometimes it gets frustrating because something because like that thing and with my relationship like I knew that that was a thing for like years and I didn't know how to like move it or how to give myself permission to get off on it or anything, but I did eventually. And so that's something that I like to let people know. Like if you're feeling frustrated with existential kink and you're not sure what the angle is to really integrate something, 
it's okay. Like you'll get it and maybe it'll take you a few years. And that is still a whole lot faster than never, which is (laughs) when most people integrate things. So, um, so be patient with yourself, everybody out there, you can do it. (laughs) Yeah. If people are in that place where they feel like they know these things, but it's still like in the periphery, like you were saying, and not integrated, like how did you work with that integration process? Oh boy. Um, well, so part of it is recognizing, okay, like having the awareness of like, yes, I know that this is a thing and it's still something that I'm like trying to hold at a distance somehow that I don't really want to be fully true about who I am as I show up in the world moment to moment. Some part of me still wants it to be true that I hate being disrespected and I won't tolerate any bullshit and that I want that to be true about me. So just recognizing like, okay, well, that's, that's what you're doing. That's what you're, the story that you're telling yourself and you can have that. And as long, and you know, that's okay too. So like just the recognition that something is not fully integrated and then the just getting curious about like, okay, well, why would it be so horrible if I actually was somebody who was a big fan of being disrespected? Mm-hmm. Why would that be so, so terrible? And then the mind has its stories like, well, that would mean I was weak. Oh, that would mean I had low self-esteem. That would mean I was a loser or whatever. Okay, does it have to mean that? Oh, no, it doesn't. It does not have to mean any of those things. It could just mean um, I'm a soul who's capable of enjoying everything, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a divine. It could mean that I'm immensely powerful instead of that I'm weak. So getting getting really curious about the underlying story, about why something is forbidden, why it's not allowed, why it's bad, why it can't be a part of me. And uh, sort of patiently just dissolving that story and um, tuning in to the sensation itself, like the sensation of like how it feels to be disrespected or to feel devalued by my partner in an argument. And a practice that I do um, is sending that sensation right down into my genitals and letting it just be vulnerably present there. Um, So that's something. Um, And usually when I'm able to do that and I'm able to do that without a story, I will notice that there is some sort of like movement or vibration around it. And when you're actually feeling that, um, there's the opportunity for the the ordinary conscious self to be like, to own it and to be like, you know what? This is a part of me and this part of me is okay. I don't have to push it away. I don't have to deny it. I'm allowed to be this. I'm allowed to be everything. My security as a being is not dependent on how much I can reject and deny. So like coming into that attitude just deeper and deeper over time. Um, And there's also a way in which uh, accepting monstrousness, I think, is really important. So like, for example, it really takes like a monstrous level of unconditional love to really, really embrace the part of me that likes this. Um, And there's, how do I say, like recognizing that (laughs) in the totality of being, there's monsters. There's like this, there's this really intense, fierce creature. And that creature is part of me too, because that creature Mm -hmm. is part of the fabric of reality. Like that's a very powerful thing to realize also yeah this stuff is like the opposite of love and light it's like (laughs) we are working with shadow yeah (laughs) yeah totally it's it's definitely the opposite what I find funny is it's 1000% the opposite of like conventional love and light stuff the way it's discussed Mm -hmm. right 
But what's really hilarious is that this is actually the portal to actual love and light. Because the funny thing about actual unconditional love is that it's completely disgusting. It's gross because it loves the unlovable. Like that's by definition, that's what unconditional love does is it, it, it has no conditions on it. So you can be gross, you can be perverted, you can be fucked up, you can be evil and love still loves you. And I think that that's one of the reasons why most of us are unwilling to have conditional love, unconditional love for ourselves and others and for the world. It's because we want our love to be respectable somehow. We want our love to be right and to make sense and to be valid. Mm-hmm. And uh, unconditional love is not about that. Unconditional love is just totally disgusting and embarrassing and gross. <laughs> so <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, And as we're talking about integrating, I'm thinking too about how powerful it's been to not just like sit down and intentionally be like, I'm going to invite in this, whatever I'm working with, which I also find powerful and do, but also when I can, like in the moment of experiencing that shame or that fear or whatever, to like really ride those feelings until I can touch a place of like, oh, there's part of me that actually really loves this. And it is so powerful to like move through in the moment in that way. It's not always like that, but sometimes it is. And I try to do that. <laughs> oh yeah. I love, I love what you're talking about. Yeah. That like that in the moment experience is definitely something that arises after one has been working with this attitude and this practice for a while. And yeah, yeah it's one of my favorite things about it too, to have something be happening. Like the other day, somebody was like mad at me and I was just like, just with it in the moment and just like, oh, wow, here we go. <laughs> and that is so much, yeah, it's just so much more fun than being like, oh, no, they're mad at me. I have to hide. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and when I feel that way and I don't let myself move through and I can't touch that place of like, oh, maybe this is actually like really fun. Um it takes me out for a while. Like it can take me out for days, like kind of freezing or shrinking or like, cause I'm kind of resisting going all the way in on it. So yeah. In the moment is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the ways that I think about this work is that it's all about learning to be really present in high sensation. And there's a certain way in which we are all just like being perpetually nailed just fucked by the universe in every single moment. We're just being nailed. And it's like, we have all these mental ways of like trying to avoid the fact that we're like completely nailed and completely um, at the mercy (laughs) of the, of the divine lover in every moment. Um, And it's like, when we start dropping those stories and just like start tuning in to like, what, does it feel like right here, right now, what's happening? Um, Can my attention just stay with this in an approving, welcoming way? Mm -hmm. Um, We start to tap into this really strong current of electricity. And that current of electricity is like the intelligence of life itself. It's like the live wire of the goddess. It's like the Shakti that's making everything. And it's, really, really fascinating when we let ourselves be in that stream of electricity, like how magical and marvelous life can get. Yeah. You also have this practice in your book that I am obsessed with, um, the deepest fear inventory. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So deepest fear inventory, I consider it to be a great warm up for existential kink, a great way of, um, you know, sometimes you can't do existential kink because like you're too depressed and your mind is too swampy and it won't, it's basically not good conditions for the practice. So in times when I'm down or times when I just really need to clear my mind, um, I do this practice called deepest fear inventory. And it's based on this thing that uh, Marianne Williamson said, she said, you know, our deepest fear is not that we are powerless, it's that we are powerful beyond all measure. So what what we do in deepest fear inventory is we sort of take a look at the reverse sides of the things that we ostensibly want. So if I really want, you know, if I'm going around telling myself that I really want to be rich and famous, let's say, I might write at the top of a sheet of paper, dear God, I hate and resent being rich and famous. 
because I have deep fear that I, because I have deep fear that I, and then I find at least 20 deep fears associated with that. So, um, you know, so imagining that I already am rich and famous and what would I hate and resent about that? Well, um, you know, I have deep fear that everybody envies me and I can't trust anybody because I have deep fear that I am unwilling to feel people judging me because I have deep fear that I'm unwilling to feel um, like I can do anything that I want without consequence because I have deep fear that I am unwilling to be the center of so many people's attention. And I just like find all of the uncomfortable things associated with this thing that I ostensibly want. and the reason why I don't have the thing that I ostensibly want is because I'm attached to these fears. Mm -hmm. So what we do with deepest fear inventory is um, it's sort of like scraping off layers of paint. So I write the inventory and then I read it out loud to a friend and the friend says, thank you for your honesty. And I said, thank you for listening. And I just rip up the sheet of paper. And as I'm ripping it up, it's like I'm ripping up my attachment to those fears. Mm -hmm. And I will do that over and over again over the course of some weeks. And it gets boring. Like you start writing out the same things over and over again. You're like, oh God, why am I, why do I need to, uh, and it, but it's there. And you just write it down, you read it out loud, you rip it up. And in a few weeks, it's amazing. You can like remove a whole giant layer of fear from your being just through sheer boredom. Basically, it's, again, you're making the unconscious conscious. It's like you're taking the little things that are like underlying your current situation, bringing them into conscious awareness by reading them out loud. And you're banishing them. You're doing a little banishing ritual when you rip it up. Um, it... Yeah, it's a very powerful practice in and of itself. And if somebody is having trouble, like they don't know how to get off on something that seems like too weird, too far out, I would recommend that they just go ahead and do deepest fear inventory because it's very simple. It's very straightforward and it has the same effect of making the unconscious conscious. So it can have, um, it acts as like a dissolving force that again, liberates energy that can be directed into other new projects. Yeah, I've found that it's brought so much clarity on different things and been like, whoa, that's inside me. And it is. And yeah, I think you're so right about it getting boring. I'll get to a point where I'm like, oh, this don't even feel that true anymore. And that's when it's like, oh, that's the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's like there's something about just like facing them repeatedly where you're like, why would I? No, that's not actually a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and you let it go. And then it's not actually a thing anymore. Yeah. 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 This kind of concept is making me think about something I wrote down from your book. It's like, it's impossible to desire something without also fearing it a little bit. And I think that's so true because desire is such a, it's like, there's such a charge to it. And so like, of course there's that like underlying charge or opposite of like the fear being there too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's some part of us that knows that every time we get fulfilled in some way, we change. We like we kind of mutate a little bit. Like there's no way to receive something without being changed by it. And if nothing else, there's a part of us that's always afraid of change. <laughs> and so like, yeah, there's definitely it is it's a fascinating thing, like two sides of the same coin, that desire and the fear. Yeah. Something else that you talk about is you're having this level. Um, and so I'm curious if there's anything you want to share for people around what like you're having this level is and how to kind of notice that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that's been talked about in different ways. Um, like the psychologist Gay Hendricks calls it um, like the upper limit problem, I think. Um, but basically you're having this level is just like the amount of good stuff that you will let into your life um, without going down a weird paranoid reality tunnel where you start pushing the good things away. So people have different having this levels based on, I don't know what their childhood experiences, their past life karma could be any number of things. But like, for example, some people will come into this world and they have a huge having this level for friends and family and a really teeny tiny having this level for money. So they can have lots of good friendships, lots of good family relationships and they won't 
get paranoid or weird or push people away. But let's say they, um, you know, they get a promotion at work and they start getting more money and they get really uptight with like all of the new responsibility just feels overwhelming and they start, you know, making mistakes and stressing out and they soon they work themselves back down to a smaller, the same smaller level of money that they had before. Um, And this, the easiest place to observe this phenomenon is like with people who win the lottery. So like somebody who has been, let's say they've been a plumber their whole life and that's been cool. And they bought a lotto ticket one day and now they have $60 million. And what happens? Well, very often what happens in situations like that is people, you know, within a year or two are, have spent all the money <laughs> and they're back to the same level of income that they were at before. And, um, you know, maybe they bought a car or a boat or something, but anyways, it just, it tends to just, they can't deal with it. And sometimes people even get addicted to drugs or, you know, gambling or things. They freak out. They, their reality isn't able to handle that influx. And this is all very, very connected to who we identify ourselves as what are, you know, what is our identity? How do we understand who we are? Um, So a big part of the work of practical magic um, involves, it's sort of like, um, how do I say? Like our consciousness is the projector that projects the movie of our experience. So a lot of people just try to work on somehow like get the movie picture to be different. They like move things around in the movie picture. The reason why that doesn't often work that well is connected to this, having this issue, like the the picture will just start to get all wonky and weird. If you just move things in it, (laughs) what you really need to do is you need to work on the projector and you need to work on um, the film itself so that what is being projected changes. So um, expanding one's having this level has to do with uh, usually the first step is dissolving different beliefs um, and how do I say, uh, fixations connected to one's current level of experience. So for example, um, when my having this level for money was like very, very small, I was very, very um, worried about taxes and just like, how do I deal with that? How does one, you know, what is that thing? I was just like afraid of that. I was afraid of um, being envied by other people. I was afraid of being responsible for other people. Like if I have a lot of money, then that means that I'm responsible for taking care of everybody I've ever met somehow. And just like all of these different things. And like one by one, I had to deal with them in deepest fear inventory, in existential kink, Um, and open up to a new level of a new kind of relationship with my experience where X doesn't necessarily mean Y the way that I thought it did. Mm -hmm. So expanding one's happiness level is also connected to expanding that window that one is willing to get off on, right? Because if um, there's a way in which if I'm only willing to get off on a very small range of things, uh, I keep myself in this homeostasis that repeats. And the more, you know, both good and bad that I'm willing to enjoy and celebrate and be, you know, meet with open-hearted curiosity, um, the more wonderful things can happen because I, I won't turn myself off. And by turning myself off, that really is entering kind of a paranoid state. It's entering the state of like, um, being distrustful, being suspicious, not feeling safe, being fearful. And when one, when one goes into that state of mind, first of all, you don't even know that you're doing it. Like it, it seems like what's real. It doesn't seem like I'm going into a paranoia now. It seems like this is what's real. So a huge thing is becoming aware when one is doing that. So sorry, this is coming out of me kind of non-linearly, but Something that I recommend that people do is like, notice how good for how long will you let yourself feel before you start getting really worried about something? 
So about, you know, worried about what other people think about you, about, you know, your money or whatever, like how much fun and good feelings will you let yourself have before you start contracting and making yourself uptight and getting really scared and getting really worried about something. And that lets you know how big you're having this level for feeling good is. And so I dare anybody out there who's listening, I dare you to just start getting really, really curious and really, really suspicious of your suspicion. <laughs> Anytime you start getting fearful, start being like, is this really true? Or is this just a funny little um, thing designed to distract me from how awesome and beautiful life is actually? Yeah. Thank you for being here. Do you want to tell people where they can find you and follow you. Thank you so, so much for having me today. So right now there's applications are open for my wealth membership program where we work with all these processes and where people, um, lots of our members have doubled, tripled, quadrupled their incomes and experienced really big, dramatic, positive changes in their lives. We have fun social events. We have workshops, we have business trainings. Wealth is really incredible. So they can learn more about that. Um, by going to my website, carolyngraceelliot.com. And um, they can also learn about that by going to my Instagram at carolynelliot underscore. And the link to join wealth is in my bio. Um, They can also join my email list on the website. um, Follow me on Instagram. These are good ways to stay in touch and find out about what I'm doing and what I'm offering. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.